Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 9. That's why that video played, so you would know. Uh, Mark chapter 9. If you do not have a Bible, there's a black one in the seat back in front of you. You get to page 896. You'll be with us at the passage we're going to be looking at today, which will be Mark 9, verses 2 through 8. Um, I want to thank... Uh, Seth for giving us those announcements and thank the worship team uh, for leading us this morning. There were some pretty bold uh, declarations in some of those songs, wasn't there? And if you're out there, you're near, you're like, man, do these people actually believe all that? You're going to hear this morning, yes, we do. Uh, We believe all that in full and you're going to see why from the Word of God today. And so we're excited uh, to go through that with you. If you are a guest, man, we we are thrilled that you're here. Uh, We know how hard it is to try something new and so please, uh, please just accept our welcome this morning. And if you would like to, stop by our Connect Desk, which is right through those doors. Uh, we have a gift for you for coming because we know uh, just how awkward and uncomfortable it can be to try someplace new. We want to we just express our appreciation to you. But we're thankful that each of you are here and, uh, and ready to receive uh, from the word of the Lord this morning. So I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer, and then we'll launch out in this message. So let's pray. Father, we're so thankful uh, for the opportunity that we've had to, to, uh, to hail King Jesus this morning, uh, Lord, to, to, to sing uh, his praises, to sing uh, worship to his name, and then we're going to see why in your word this morning, why that matters, uh, why that's a good and right thing to do. And so we pray that as we look at this passage, Lord, that you would be the one that speaks loudest, uh, that your word would not return to you void, uh, but you would say everything that you want to say this morning and that you'd get the glory from all of it. And we ask this all in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. So my senior year of high school at Cloverdale High School, I decided that I wanted to run cross country. To this day, nobody knows why, including me, right? It wasn't a sport I'd ever done before, right? I had a chance uh, to run some in elementary. I didn't. I had a chance to run cross country in junior high. I didn't. I had a chance to run cross country in freshman, sophomore, and junior years, and I didn't. And some reason, in the summer before my senior year, I was like, hey, I think I want to try this this year. And so I joined the team, and we started practicing, and in practice, we, uh, we ran longer distance than I'd ever run in my entire life. Uh, I think the first week of practice, I ran more miles than I had the previous, like, 18 years, okay? But I was young. I was only 18, and so youth is wasted on the young. You don't even realize what you have. It really wasn't that hard cardiovascularly, right? The distances were, I wasn't, I was finishing. It, was, it wasn't that hard. But the challenge was that with each passing practice, I was, I was in more and more and more pain, because first I developed shin splints, and then they became very severe shin splints, and I just kept running, thinking, tomorrow I'll wake up and my legs will feel fine. And they never did. And so finally I went to a sports medicine uh, doctor, and he said I was running every day on a stress fracture. And so I was like, ooh, that's, that doesn't sound great. And so I went to my coach's house that night to tell him what the doctor said, and he did something that I didn't expect and didn't see coming. He just said, Brett, why are you doing this? And I said, what do you mean? He's like, you're a senior. You've never ran before. Well, the, kind of the undercurrent of it was, you're not that great. We're not that, like, we're not relying on you for anything, right? He's like, you're in all kinds of pain. Like, every day I watch you, like, you're limping after practice. Like, if we shut you down right now, maybe, maybe, maybe you'll heal in time for one last race, but maybe not. Like, why are you still trying to do this? And not only had I not asked myself that question, when he asked it, I didn't have an answer for it. And I couldn't come up with a single reason to try to keep running and fighting through the pain. And that ended my illustrious cross-country career. It's like four and a half weeks. That was it, right? Now, I want to have a similar conversation with you guys today. Because as a church for, I went back and looked actually this morning. We've, we've been in the book of Mark for over a year now. 
Okay, and so we've been studying this book, and I, and, and I don't know if you've grasped the gravity of what we have unpacked these last three to four weeks. Right, we've, we've invested a lot of time in this book, but what we've studied at the end of Mark 8 into the beginning of Mark 9 is, is a major turning point in the Gospel of Mark. Not only does it mark a major shift in this book, because right, here on out, the narrative is all about Jesus' focus in heading to Jerusalem and heading to die. Right? But what occurred at the end of Mark chapter 8 was a game changer for everyone who was following Jesus, everyone who was his disciple. And we as a church have been studying the book of Mark because I presume that we desire to follow Jesus. Right? We're a church, of Jesus, a church of people who are Jesus' disciples and apprentices and we want, to, we want to follow him more closely and we invite guests here hoping that they will, too will believe in Jesus and then join us in following him. And the formula that Jesus has laid out for us at the end of Mark 8 is everything. It changes everything. It flies in the face of all the disciples hoped for, and it flies in the face of much of what we've settled for in, in, in modern-day American Christianity. In which Jesus says, all right, if anybody wants to follow after me, here's the formula. Number one, they must deny themselves. Number two, they must take up their cross, an instrument of death and suffering, and number three, follow me wherever I lead them. And we spent the last three or four Sundays talking about discipleship, talking about that formula, that level of cost. And I know what some of you have been thinking. Because I've had similar thoughts in my life. Right? What some of you have been thinking, why would I ever do this? Right? Why, why, why should I deny myself? Why exactly should I take up my cross, choose suffering and death? Why follow where someone else leads me? Like, why wouldn't I lead my life? Isn't it my life? Why wouldn't I serve myself or put myself first? There's nobody else out there doing that. That nobody else is out looking for me. I need to look out for me. Why shouldn't I give in to my desires or follow my heart? Isn't that the message we hear all the time? What would be so wrong about going with the flow of culture and, and just having a life that doesn't face resistance all the time? Why not? Why, who is this Jesus to demand this level of cost from me? Or maybe you've tried to settle into like both ways. Why can't I just believe in him and be forgiven and have the gift of eternal life? And then, you know, kind of just half-hearted follow from there. Like, you know, clean up my life a little, go to church every now and then, but still remain on the throne, still be in control. Why does he want so much? Why does he deserve so much? Now, if you've had any of those thoughts, I won't make you admit that this morning, okay? But just know you're far from alone, even if others won't admit it. And if you have had those thoughts, I'm really glad that you're here today. Because what we're going to see today in Mark 9 is a resounding answer to all of those questions and more. We're going to get to be witness to an event that, that not only sets Jesus apart and, and makes him exclusive, no matter how much our culture hates that word, but we're going to, it's going to lay to rest all of our questions about his worthiness. And so I'm going to invite Travis Beckner up to read today's passage. He's going to be reading for us Mark uh, chapter 9, verses 2 through 8. And if you're physically capable, would you please stand to honor the reading of the word of the Lord this morning? Morning, Trav. Morning, church. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, 
and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. Thank you, Travis. You guys have a seat. Now, before we unpack that, I want to just break, take a moment to break down what we just read. Travis started reading in, in verse 2, which gives us a timestamp that says after six days had passed. And so that means this is six days after that confrontation between Jesus and his disciples that we've spent the last three or four weeks uh, studying, which Jesus asked them, like, who do you say I am? And they say, you are the Messiah, which is the right answer. And then he begins to teach them that even though they have his title right, they have his purpose wrong. Right, that he's not here to be an earthly king. Instead, he's here to be suffered, to suffer and be rejected and, and, and be killed. And this is when disciples react poorly to this. Peter actually physically, like not physically, but rebukes Jesus and corrects him. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, because you have in mind the things of man, not the things of God. And then he calls a crowd over and says, if, he gives us the formula. Anyone who wants to follow after me, deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Right? And so... That, that, that whole scene has happened, and now six days have passed, right? And the way they record time is that means one full week, right? One full week has, has, has transpired. And I love that, that Jesus knew what to do here, right? He knew this was, uh, he just wrecked the worldview. He knew this was the most contentious conversation he'd ever had with him, so he just lets it sit for a week, right? He just lets it fest, it lets him think through it, lets him process it, lets him pray for it. And then a week later, he grabs Peter, James, and John, it was always these three, right? Yes, Jesus had an inner circle, all right? And I don't know exactly why, and I'd love to unpack that someday in a sermon, but he, whenever he's going to do something incredibly special, he takes these three, not the 12. And so he grabs Peter, James, and John, and he leads them up a high mountain to be alone. And what happened there is incredibly significant. So significant that every single gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all mention it. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record the whole thing in full. John mentions it not only in his gospel, but in all the letters he writes at the end of the, of the New Testament as well. And he keeps referring to how he saw the glory of the Son of God. This is the event he's talking about. And what happens is once they're up on the mountain alone, Jesus is transfigured before them. That's the word the Bible uses. It's a word that means literally changed into another form. Now, I can't tell you this morning exactly what that looked like. Right? But I know it would be stunning, and I assume, based on the descriptions we've been given from this and a similar event that Moses had in the book of Exodus, that it would be very bright. Right? Because Mark tells that even the clothes that Jesus had on were transformed, they, and he says they are more white than any human launderer could ever make them, which means there's not enough bleach in the world to get this level of white. And so Jesus is transfigured before them. He's, he's shining brightly, and then it gets even crazier where Moses and Elijah both show up on the mountain. Now, not only are Moses and Elijah two of the most significant people in all of Jewish history, but don't forget this either. They've also been gone from the earth for hundreds of years. So it's kind of a big deal that they show up on this mountain, right? And I love the detail in verse 4. You have transfigured, glowing Jesus, Moses and Elijah, and Mark says, and they're just chatting. They're just having a conversation. And what they're talking about, according to Luke's gospel, is they're talking about Jesus' upcoming departure, his death on the cross, and these three disciples, Peter, James, and John, are freaking out at this point. And Peter did what he always does, and he opened his mouth. Peter, when he was scared, opened his mouth. Peter, when he was worried, opened his mouth. Peter, when he was bold, opened his mouth. Peter, when he was excited, opened his mouth. It's, what, it's, it's his go-to move, so he just starts talking. 
And he suggests that they build three shelters, which is probably a reference to the, the, the way they, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, in that feast, right, one of the Jewish feasts, they would build these temporary shelters that would represent not wanting to leave this worship experience. That's probably the signal that what he's saying. This is a good place to be. Let's not leave here. And Mark actually tells us in a side in verse 5, Peter really didn't even know what to say. He was just talking to talk. And then God the Father shows up as if this experience couldn't get any better. And his presence comes in the form of a cloud, just like in the book of Exodus. And it envelops and overshadows the entire mountain in a way that silences everybody. And God the Father speaks, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And the cloud disappears, and there's no one there with the disciples, no one except Jesus. Now, maybe you're here and you already know why this is a big deal. And maybe you heard that and you're thinking, well, I don't, I mean, okay, sounds kind of neat, but what's the big fuss? But what I want to do this morning is look at this from a few different angles. And my goal is by the end of our time this morning is that all of us will have a better idea why this event is such a big deal. Right? To even realize just a glimpse of, of why this matters so much. And the first angle I want to take a look at is that Jesus' transfiguration looks back at all that God had done to that point. Now remember, right? it was Abraham's descendants, it was, it was the Jewish people, the people of Israel that God chose and set apart for himself in the Old Testament. It was through them that he revealed himself, it was through them that he revealed his law, it was to and through them that he sent the prophets, and it was through them that he promised first and then sent his son, the Messiah. And so any Jewish person or anyone with knowledge of their history would see all of the references and all the callbacks that are happening on this Mount of Transfiguration. Moses was the one who had led the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery. He was the one to whom God actually gave his law, which formed the entire way of life for God's people. Following the law is how they saw themselves as righteous before God. Elijah was known as possibly the greatest prophet in their history. And both Moses and Elijah, their their lives and ministry were marked by mountaintop experiences. Elijah faced off with 700 prophets of the false god Baal on Mount Carmel, and when he defeated them, he spent a time fleeing for his life, and in that process, God met him on top of Mount Horeb, spoke to him, and sent him back to more ministry. Moses, it was on top of a mountain where Moses spent time with God and received the law and received the Ten Commandments. In fact, uh, in the book of Exodus, when Moses comes down off that mountain, right, his face shone brightly, reflecting the glory of God whose presence he was just in, which is immediately something that you would think about as you read this transfiguration. And not only did Moses and Elijah have these mountaintop experiences, they also represented everything the Jewish people had trusted in up to this point, Moses represented the law, right? They actually called it the law of Moses, the law through which they would get their righteousness. Elijah would represent the prophets, how they had always heard from God. It was those two things, following God's law and hearing from God, that they put all their trust in and saw themselves as set apart. But I want you to note the strong symbolism here. Moses and Elijah come and they talk with Jesus about his death. And when God shows up, they're gone. They're gone. And what's left on this mountain is no one except Jesus. And it points to what we're told in Hebrews 1. Hebrews 1 says this, Long ago God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. This is my son, listen to him. 
See what's happening? It's no longer through observing the law through which we can be made righteous. It's only by faith in God's son dying for us. It's no longer through humans or prophets that we hear from God. He has revealed himself to us in his son, Jesus. We don't need another person to intercede on our behalf to hear God's voice. Jesus himself says in John 10, my sheep know me and they know my voice. What happened on this mount of transfiguration was God pointing back to all that he'd done in the past and then showcasing how it was all just preparation for his son. Everything before this was a mere shadow or reflection. Now his kingdom and his glory were coming in full through his son. So this event wasn't just about looking back. Jesus' transfiguration was also looking ahead to all that God will do in the future. The picture of these two men, Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus about his upcoming death is a powerful one. Because as Jesus will put it himself in Luke 20, God is a God of the living, not of the dead. And all of this is foreshadowing to what Jesus' death and resurrection will do. Do you remember the formula? First the suffering, then the glory. And Jesus promised them at the beginning of this chapter that some of them would see a glimpse of this. Look back at verse 1 of Mark 9. It says, then he said to them, truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. He lets a week pass from that proclamation and then some, some standing there, these three are witness to the kingdom of God coming in power. And as stunning as I'm sure Jesus appeared here, we have to also grasp that this likely was not the full picture. It was not Jesus in his full glory. And and I'm confident of that because of the reaction of those on the mountain. The disciples are terrified, yes, but they're still standing. And in fact, Peter feels comfortable enough to talk. And in Revelation 1, we see John, who, by the way, is one of the three on this mountain, John, who saw the transfiguration. In Revelation 1, John sees Jesus in all of his glory after his death and resurrection and ascension. And here's how he describes that. Revelation 1, John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. That's the reaction. He laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Brandon quoted to us in the middle of the worship set Philippians 2 today. That's what this, that famous passage is talking about. That's when it says that Jesus, being in very nature God, being equal to God, gave up some of the divine privileges and glory by taking on the form of a servant and coming as a man. You see, what Peter and James and John saw on this mountain was a glimpse of the fullness of Jesus' glory. What John saw, sees in Revelation 1 is the full picture. And John who was on the mountain of transfiguration, John, who traveled with Jesus for three years, John, who was the one comfortable enough to lean against Jesus during the Last Supper, when he sees the fullness of Jesus, he falls down before him as if he's a dead man. Now, this transfiguration was looking ahead to Jesus returning to his full glory and also looking ahead to the glory that he will give his followers. I mean, think about what's represented here. Moses represents those who have died in the Lord. Right? And the glory that his resurrection will bring them. Elijah, if you remember, was taken up to heaven before he died. And there's been a lot of people who wondered why. Right? What, what, why, why did Elijah get that? And I think part of it is to signify what God will do when Jesus returns for those who have not died yet either. The Apostle Paul writes about this in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive... 
Right? We who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. You're saying that Moses and Elijah represent both those groups, right? They foreshadow what Jesus' upcoming death and resurrection will do for those who believe in him. That we, whether we face death itself or we are still alive when he returns and brings his kingdom in full, because of Jesus, we'll be taken to our own experience where we will bask in his glory forever. It's, it's, it's looking ahead of this. But here's the main point of all of this, right? The transfiguration of Jesus doesn't just look back. And it doesn't just look ahead. In fact, those are secondary purposes. The main point of all of this is a clear divine declaration. A God-sized mic drop, if you will. The most important thing about this event is the bold, clear, loud, unflinching declaration that it makes that there is no one equal to Jesus. Look, at, look again at, at Peter's reaction in verse 5. He says, Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he didn't know what to say since they were terrified. Now, I want to go easy on Peter this morning, because the last time Peter talked, he got called Satan, right? And he gets picked on a lot. But with that caveat, right, and understanding he's not grasping all he's seen, there's a ton he got wrong here. And the first is this, this idea of building shelters represents a desire to stay there, to stay in that moment, to stay on the mountain. It's why he says, it's good that we're here. You ever felt a close worship experience with the Lord and you're like, man, I would just like to stay here in this moment the rest of my life. Well, that's what Peter's doing here. He didn't know what he was seeing, but he knew it was significant and awesome and he just wanted to stay a while. What's the problem with that? The problem is there's still work to do in the valley. They couldn't stay on the mountain forever. In fact, the previous conversation of this was the one where Jesus told him, I need to be rejected, I need to suffer, and I need to die on a cross. So he couldn't stay on the mountain forever. The second thing that Peter gets wrong here is he calls Jesus rabbi. Now that's not a wrong title, right? Jesus is a teacher, but it's way short of what is being revealed to Peter here. And then by offering all three of them a shelter, Jesus, uh, Moses, and Elijah, he's putting them all in the same category. It's really cool that you three are here, so let's keep you all together here. And, and again, way off on that. And he's so wrong that Jesus doesn't correct him. He's so wrong that Moses doesn't correct him. He's so wrong that Elijah doesn't correct him. What happens instead is God the Father shows up in, in such power that it shuts even Peter up for once. And his presence comes in this undeniable way that gathered the attention of everyone there and silenced them. And the message was short but powerful. This is my son. This is my beloved son. He is not a rabbi. He's not a teacher of the law. He's the very fulfillment of it. He is not a giver of prophecies. He's the one that every prophet prophesied about and looked towards. He is not a shadow of the things to come. He is the thing to come. He is the visible image of the invisible God. He is the fulfillment of everything that God wanted to do. He is the son of God. I, God, am claiming him as my son and my equal. And then I love this detail. Suddenly the cloud disappears. The voice goes quiet and there's nobody there. Right? There's no one there with disciples anymore. No one except Jesus. Because there's no one left. There is no one who's equal. There's no one except Jesus because Jesus stands alone. And what are you to do with that information? It's really simple. God says, 
Listen to him. Obey him. Follow him, right? Trust him. Do what he says to do, right? Do as he does. Stop listening to anyone else, including yourself, instead of listening to him. Stop giving your devotion and worship to anyone or anything else, including yourself, instead of giving it to him. Because all of creation and all of time itself, all of history, all the present, all the future, everything revolves around and points to Jesus Christ. And when everything else is stripped away, there's no one except Jesus still standing, because he has no equal. So, why deny yourself? It's simple. You're not him. That's why. Why take up your cross? Because he of all people took up his cross for you. Why follow where he leads? Because he is the eternal, all-knowing, and the sovereign king of everything. It'd be foolish to follow anyone other than him. And this event, shown to three people at one time, right, but recorded in God's word forever, declares with great volume the actual exclusivity of Jesus. There is no one but him. There is no one like him. There's no one except him. And there are lots of ways, right, that we could respond to this. There's some really cool principles that we could mine from this story and apply to our lives. Things like, like get time alone with God. Find your own mountain, which is hard in Terre Haute because there are no mountains, right? But find some ways to get alone with God. And while you're there, don't do all the talking. Let him speak. Our idea is like, take some time to look back at everything that God has done for you in the past. Let the past be a promise to encourage you. Or look ahead to all he's promised you. And those are all good, but they're not the main point of this passage, and I don't want us to miss the main point. So I only have one. It's one single challenge of response for you today, and it's this. Set apart Jesus Christ as Lord in your life. First Peter 3, actually, we're commanded this. It says this, But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, that's a relatively famous verse in the New Testament. But there's something that's always been intriguing to me about that verse. And here's what it is. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is holy. You and I don't get to decide that. And yet, here in 1 Peter 3, we are commanded to set him apart, to regard him as those things in our hearts. And so that command means this. That verse is not about who Jesus is. That verse is about who I am. Because Christ is king forever. That debate is settled. What remains is this. Will I set him apart as king of my life? Will I revere and obey and, and serve him as my Lord and make him holy in my life? And God has worked in such a way to make it very, very simple for us. From the beginning of time to now and then for the rest of time, he has been pointing us to Jesus. And whenever you and I make a, as big a deal out of Jesus as we possibly can, we join God in what he's been doing forever. When you sang and worship Jesus this morning, you join God in all of heaven and what they've been doing forever. When you set aside time in your day to spend with, with your Savior and abide in him, you may, and you exalt him in your lives and hearts, you join God in what he's been doing forever. When you share the good news of his gospel, you join God in what he's been doing forever. In your heart and in your life and in your spirit and in your mind, in your home, regard him as holy, set apart and as Lord, because there's life in no one else but him. There is hope in no one else but him. Purpose can be found nowhere else but in Jesus Christ. Answers can be found nowhere else but in him. And eternal life and eternal joy are found nowhere else but in him. Now, we have the option, by the way, of declaring anything as Lord of our lives. 
We have the capability and will to give our praise, to give our worship, to give our reverence and our service and our devotion to anyone or anything or any person or any God we want. But please understand that does not make all options equal. Just because we can doesn't mean they're all the same. It doesn't change the fact that no other object of our praise, no other object of our trust, our faith, our service, or devotion is worthy of any of those things. Only he is. Because everything, everyone, every other God, every other life plan, every other idol, every other one of your desires, they will all fail you, they will let you down, and they will all be shown to be fully insufficient. All of them will, except for Jesus. So who is worthy of our lives and our devotion and our worship? Who is worthy of our cost and our suffering or sacrifice? Who is worthy of the best I have to offer? No one except Jesus. Who is worthy of being set apart in my life and in my heart and in my calendar and in my wallet and in my mind and in my pursuits and my passions? No one except for Jesus. And so here's what I want us to do today. First off, if you're here and you've never believed in Jesus Christ, we call and you plead you to do so today. The Jesus who stands alone, who all eternity revolves around, that Jesus went to a cross and suffered and died, and he did so to pay the price for the sins that you and I have committed that make us guilty before holy God. And if we believe in him, then his death actually pays our price. We are forgiven in full and given the promise of eternal life. And that life and that forgiveness and that salvation is found only in Jesus. Nowhere else. And so call out to him today and ask him to forgive you and save your soul. Now, if you've done that, then you know two things this morning. Number one, you know just how amazing his grace and forgiveness are. And number two, you know how much you still get wrong. Because the rest of your days are this battle between the Holy Spirit in you and your sinful flesh. And we constantly want to take the throne back from Jesus. We constantly want to wrestle control back. And so what I want you to do this morning is to take a moment and ask God to take inventory of your life. And just ask him these questions. What part of my life have I not surrendered to you yet? Where is it, Lord, that I'm still walking in disobedience to you? What is it about me or my heart or my character that is not pleasing to you? Is there anything besides you that is getting the fullness of my passion and energy and excitement? Is there anything besides you that is getting the greatest of my investments in cost and resource and time? Ask him, what are you calling me to do that thus far I keep saying no? What have you been asking me to give up that thus far I've held on to? You see, Jesus Christ is Lord of all. He's king forever. The question is, in your heart and in your mind and your life, have you set him apart as Lord? Do you regard him as holy? And so wherever it is you need kicked off the throne this morning, jump off of it. Whatever he asks you for, give it. Whatever he's, wherever he's telling you to go, go there. Whatever he's telling you to do, do it. And along the way, thank him for the immense love and grace and patience he shows every time our worship and service and devotion fall short of what he does, because it always does. So why deny myself? Why take up my cross? Why follow wherever Jesus leads? Because he's worthy of all of it. And no one else is except for him. Let's pray.
Father, I'm grateful that in your discipleship, in your teaching of these men who you've challenged uh, 2,000 years ago and just wrecked their worldview, God, that you let it sit for a week and then you showed them your glory. You showed them your worthiness. You showed them exactly who you are and why you're worthy of denying myself, why you're worthy of taking up my cross, why you're worthy of following you wherever. And then, Lord, we got the same timeline. We got to wrestle for a month with, with your call as a discipleship. We got to let it sit for seven days and then come back and read in your word just this immense display, this divine declaration, there's no one like Jesus. That this is my son, my beloved son. Listen to him. And so I pray around the room this morning, God, that we would simply do that. We would listen to him. If there's anybody who's, who's, who you are calling out to right now, just drawing to yourself, would today be their day of salvation? Would they surrender and believe in you right now? And then God, for the rest of us, I pray that we would take this moment of response to be still before you. That even in our prayers, we would not be talking. We'd just be asking. God, what is it that you want me to do? Where is it you want me to go? Where have I not given you control? Where am I walking in disobedience? Lord, reveal these things to us. And may you find in this room, may you find in this church, a group of people willing to simply listen to him and get the glory from all of it. And we ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, before we dismiss you this morning, we're going to give you a chance to do just that to ask the Lord to take inventory of your life, to spend some time in prayer, wrestling with things he might be revealing to you, things he might be saying to you. And, and around the room, I'm praying that you'll have the boldness, you'll have the wisdom, you'll have the courage to give up whatever he's asking you to give up, to do whatever he's asking you to do.